This is the Amplify Podcast, the voice of the third space, which is recorded at Studio 3 in Norman, Oklahoma. I'm Suzette Corlott. This is a special series called Corruption is Deadly. In our 10th episode of the series, Sarah Banna and I welcome attorney David Smith to discuss corruption in the legal system. David practices law in the areas of criminal defense and civil litigation. He served as the public defender for Cleveland County from 1997 until July 2014 and has conducted jury trials throughout Oklahoma as well as in Washington, Texas, and Missouri. Please listen to our conversation about misconduct and unethical actions that are evident throughout our legal system, as it is more important than ever to understand how and why corruption is not only costly, but deadly. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Corruption is Deadly. This is a special series of the Amplify podcast, the voice of the third space. With me, as always, is Sarah Banna. Sarah, my co-host, thank you for being here with me today. Ecstatic to be here. Good afternoon. And we have a special guest. We're really excited to welcome David Smith, who is a criminal defense attorney. David, thanks for joining us today on Corruption is Deadly. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's just start, David. Uh, today, we're going to have a conversation about corruption in the in the legal world and how that can ruin lives and does ruin lives and is deadly. But can you just start by giving us a little bit of background about yourself as a criminal defense attorney? Kind of tell us a little bit about your history. Sure. I uh, went to law school here at OU. And uh, while I was here, I served an internship as, as an intern at the district attorney's office. And that's kind of where I became interested in criminal law. After I got out from that point on uh, in 1982, I focused mostly on on criminal defense law. For a a good long while, I was actually the public defender here in Cleveland County. I I was a contract public defender with the Oklahoma Indigent Defense System. Okay, so a long history in working in the criminal court system. And I just want to note that earlier we were having a conversation and you wanted to note that it was the criminal court system and not criminal justice system. Can you tell us a little bit about why you call it that instead of criminal justice? Well, it's just kind of a thing with me. You know, I don't like to call it the criminal justice system because there's damn little justice in it, to tell you the truth. Not nearly enough, anyway. It's more accurate to just point out that it's a court system. So what do you mean by that when there's little justice? Well, as with a lot of other aspects of our our society, your chances of a good outcome if you're charged with a crime are directly related to, first of all, the amount of money you have to spend in your defense, resources that you have, and then other factors too, like your race, for example. So we have been paying attention to issues of policing and so corruption among, among law enforcement, corruption among judges and those sorts of things over the past few weeks and months. So, you know, when we talk about the legal system or corruption in the court system, I think in my mind, you know, and in probably a lot of people's minds, you think of the bribes that are paid, the money that kind of exchanges hands, something under the table, you know, the the dark envelope or whatever that's left on somebody's desk to either make sure that somebody gets off without being convicted or whatever the case may be. But that that's kind of like what we have in mind. So does that happen, first of all? Is that the kind of thing that we see? And is that the kind of corruption that is most prevalent and that we should be most concerned about? Well, I, I'm sure it does happen, as with any other part of our government. You know, that that's, you might even say it's part of human nature. I think the most prevalent thing in, in our legal system, though, is uh, what, what corrupts it the most is just power. People involved in the in the criminal court system have a tremendous amount of power. The district attorneys, the the judges, 
even you know to some extent the police that, that respond to the original call. They make decisions that have enormous effects on people's lives. And it's like anything else. There are people that you know have power that have no business having power. People that can be trusted with it and people that can't. And how often do you think there's abuse of power? How normalized is that type of abuse in this profession? Well, of course, abuse is kind of relative. I mean, there's there's minor abuses and major abuses and outrageous abuses. But I'd say it's uh, you know, there's no way to quantify it. I mean, how often does it happen? Who knows? But certainly it's not uncommon at all. So in your experience, do you see you know, let's say like a district attorney, for example, who runs for office. Are these people who run for office because they're seeking power or do they find themselves in a position where they then feel extremely powerful once in that position? They then realize how much power they actually have. And then, as Sarah just pointed out, you know, seek to then abuse their power in order to stay in office or to serve a particular demographic or their people who fund their campaigns or I mean how does this play out well I think you start with the fact that you know it's a political process and the sad fact you know he comes back around to money uh, it's pretty hard to get elected in this in this country to anything if you don't have any money so they start the process by having to curry favor with people that that can help finance their campaign you know with donations large and small and that takes a number of different forms. I mean, and it, I don't think it's any different for a prosecutor, for example, than it would be for any other politician. Problem is then, you know, do you owe people favors or not? I mean, some people are going to donate to you because they just like what you have to say. And others will donate to you because they expect something in return. And again, that, uh, that part of it is no different than any other part of a political system. I've known some prosecutors that were very fine people. You know, people that you can tr- really trust with the authority that they have. And, and for the most part, they became prosecutors because they believe in the work. And there are plenty of them out there who do. I'm sure there are those who run for that office because they crave that kind of power. That maybe importance is a better word, at least initially. Uh, you know, a district attorney in a, in a large district is a pretty important person. And again, you know, they're important because they have that power. You know, again, some people can be trusted with it and some can't. And uh, surely there are those who kind of goes to their head at some point. Would it help to minimize the kind of power abuses that can happen, let's say, at the prosecutorial level, you know, among, let's say, a district attorney taking that kind of I'm important, but I'm also powerful and abusing that power if it wasn't a political process? I mean, do we have examples of where DAs are not politicians, too, and, and beholden to, to the you know campaign process and taking money in order to win an election? I don't really know, to tell you the truth. I, I think most places that I know of, it's a, it's a political process. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, when it is a political process, of course, you've got the uh, possibility if someone's not doing right, they can be voted out of office. That has happened here in Oklahoma. I've seen it happen. So, you know, more, you know, that's kind of a policy decision. I don't know if it would be better or worse. I think it could be – one of the things that has aggravated it over the last few years is that the executive branch, I think, and in particular prosecutors, have, have gotten more power as the legislature has taken discretion away from judges, for example – and giving it to uh, to the prosecutors. An example I can think of is that you're, you're familiar with the diversion programs we have, the, the drug court, mental health court, community sentencing. These are really, really good ideas, and they've saved a tremendous amount of money for our, our government, and they've saved a lot of people's lives. 
the way things are set up now, you cannot get into the drug court if the district attorney won't agree to it. That's something that the judge ought to decide because it's a sentencing decision. The way it's set up now, if they veto it, you're, you're not getting in. That's a huge amount of power right there. They also make charging decisions about uh, are we going to uh, charge this person with this crime after having com- been convicted of other of felonies. We call that the second page. And it alleges the person committed this crime after having been convicted of the following felonies. It enhances the punishment. Uh, we're addressing that now in, the, in, the, uh, in some state questions that will limit their ability to do that. So at least that part of the power is going to be taken back by the people. So what happened to shift that power from judges making those types of decisions to a district attorney making that kind of decision? Well, I think there are certain political ideologies that, uh, for lack of a better word, profit by saying our system's too liberal. we got all these flaky judges. And, it, you know, it's aggravated by television shows like The Law and Order. You know, all the judges are idiots and all the defense lawyers are sleazebags and all the prosecutors are you know, walking on water. Yeah, they're they're the the heroes of the yeah. shows, and yeah. the judges are all a bunch of liberals. And uh, you know, you could go all the way back to tort reform. You know, where the insurance companies convinced people that that juries were you know frivolous lawsuits, and juries were awarding tens of millions of dollars for people who stubbed their toe and stuff, which largely was a myth. I mean, it's, it doesn't happen. You, you might uh, be familiar with the McDonald's hot coffee case. Yeah. And it's, it's bled over into the criminal court system as well. You know, the idea that we, we don't need these, you know, these weak liberal judges letting people off and making decisions that, you know, that, that we don't agree with. And we can rely on the prosecutor to be more tough on crime because they're, you know, they're part of law enforcement. Because they're the top cop. Yeah, they're the top yeah. cop. And it's, you know, it goes back to the, you know, the get tough on crime thing. Yeah. And most prosecutors and most majority of the judges in Oklahoma are former cops or former district attorneys who kind of climb that ladder. What I struggle with, though, David, is the fact that here in Oklahoma, up until two, three months ago, we were the incarceration capital of the world. Uh, I believe we're third in the nation now. We continue to incarcerate more women in Oklahoma than anywhere else in the world. This problem is not something we just woke up to yesterday. It's been decades ongoing. What I struggle to wrap my brain around is, are Oklahomans just a bunch of criminals that have a you know higher likelihood to commit crimes? Or do we have a higher level of prosecutorial misconduct and abuse of power that has criminalized such large populations? of Oklahomans. Well, I, I, let me start by saying I don't think it makes a lot of sense that's, to say that Oklahomans are inherently more criminally active than any place else. I think part of the reason of our high uh, incarceration rate is people here, I think, identify themselves as very conservative. And what goes along with that, among other things, is the get tough on crime stance. Some, And I don't know, you know, it, it might even partially just be custom the way people here in Oklahoma think about it. But this business of getting tough on crime means locking people up. And as Sarah noted, uh, recently we've kind of taken a step back and looked at that kind of thing. You know, oddly enough, not because it's humane to do that or the right thing to do, but just because it's cheaper to not have to. We don't, we don't spend as much money if we're not incarcerating people as much. But, but that's what I think people don't realize. Let's put it this way. I think people think that 
people go to jail and that costs us money too. But another part of the the corruption in the in the legal world and particularly when it comes to incarceration is that there are a ton of fees and ways in which those who are incarcerated are actually paying for those expenses, right? So when you say it costs us less, that's actually true. But I think people don't think that it costs us less. I think they think that the government pays to incarcerate people and that the government is responsible for keeping people fed and housed and and provided health care while they're in jail or whatever. But that's actually not the case, right? I mean, there's a ton of funding that's being shifted, particularly from poor and, you know, middle-income people that end up in the legal system, that end up in jail or whatever, didn't have very good representation, right, had to have an appointed attorney and end up in jail because they can't pay bail and fees and whatever, and then are just fee after fee after fee, including when they get out, probation fees. I think what you're saying is, again, getting back to kind of the user fee thing, and certainly people who are incarcerated are fleeced, for lack of a better word. I mean, the uh, the cost of making phone calls from inside is, you know, if you, if you look at it by the minute, it doesn't sound like very much. But, you know, when a 15-minute phone call costs you, you know, 80 bucks or something, that's, you know, that's a significant expense to somebody. Likewise, they have what's called commissary. In other words, you can buy snacks and goodies and stuff to supplement your diet. Uh, which in some places, I mean, right now, recently heard a report about the, the, the women's prison out at Eddie Warrior. They're not feeding them. They're just not giving them enough food. And one of the reasons they do that is, A, it saves money, and B, they have to spend money on commissary. They have to spend their own money. They have to spend their own which money. Then, Actually, it's not their yeah. own money because you have to have somebody on the outside well, that yeah, will put exactly. money on your so account. So their family, their family's yeah. money or somebody that has to come put money on the account. And that and comes then, to, you know, those are generally, whether it's telecommunications or the commissary packets or, or something like this, those are, uh, like you said earlier, they're uh, by contract. They're negotiated. And if there's going to be corruption, that would generally be where it's at, you know, the, the, the classic kickback or something. i, I got to be careful. I can't say I know for a fact that that happens, but it makes sense that it would. But I can say yeah. I know for a fact that it's happening. Our criminal injustice system has become an enterprise, particularly here in Oklahoma. And Oklahoma County is a great example of how the corruption is being done on a daily basis. Well, sure. There's, there's no... I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No. There, there's no question that... Uh, and I think I made this comment to you earlier. Our criminal court system is being used as a revenue producer for government. Every time you know we have a revenue shortfall, some genius up at the legislature figures out a new assessment that can be tacked onto your court costs. Uh, costs of incarceration are a big problem. It costs you plus or minus about 50 bucks a day. And if you're in there 90 days, that's a lot of money. And then you owe that money. And if if you you can't pay it, you go back to jail. You know, people, people, again, people don't realize how expensive it is to be in jail for you, you know, (laughs) to be charged with a crime. The social cost of incarcerating somebody just for a few days, let's say you get picked up for DUI. Well, the first thing that's going to happen after you're arrested is your car is going to be impounded and you're going to owe a tow fee and a daily impound fee. So, you know, the minute that, that chain hooks up to your car, you owe the impound fee plus the tow fee. And if you're not able to get out of jail in a few days, that has accumulated to the point that you can't get your, your car out of impound and you're going to lose it and everything in it. Well, now you can't work. You know, you, you've lost your job because you didn't show up for work because you were in jail. And you didn't pay your rent, so you've been evicted from your apartment. Basically, just for being arrested and spending a, few, a week in jail, you can lose everything you've got. 
everything. So both government and private companies benefit from that, yes. right? So when you said that incarceration has become a way to generate revenue or incarceration or just, even just... Not, not just incarceration. Not just incarceration, yeah. just it, everything involving the, the legal system becomes a revenue-generating enterprise for government. But also there's that private enterprise connection where the telecommunications companies that are providing phone calls and jails... I know we, when we do jail support, for example, outside of the Oklahoma County Jail, we were listening to one parent who said that her son is is uh, in jail, has been charged. He's never actually gone to trial or anything yet, but they can't pay the bail. So he's been in there for months. I think that's right, Sarah. And in order for him to make phone calls, she has to go up there every few days, put money on his commissary slash communications fee you know, account. And it costs $9 just to put the money on. Mm-hmm. So if she only has $10, she has to give them $10, and then $1 can be used to pay for a phone call. And every single time she goes up to do that, she gives them however much money she has, $9 of it automatically goes to the telecommunications company. And what's left goes to his ability to make a phone call. I mean, again, that this is enriching private companies for providing a box on the wall in, in a jail. So that you can call your loved ones. I mean, the costs to the individual that gets stuck in this situation, not to mention the fact that you can't get out because you just can't afford bail, mm-hmm. right? So this woman was telling us how she has absolutely no money, and what she does have, she she has to put it on his commissary so he can eat. He's a teenager. He doesn't get enough food, so he's got to supplement his diet with, uh, with you know, whatever he can get well, for it's, the commissary. Commissary is more than just food. Commissary is currency, right? In you, jail, exactly. If you, you can, need somebody you to help pay you somebody out, you're with your M Ms or whatever, you're yeah. Give them a pack of donuts or something, yeah. Uh, and especially, you know, your example was a teenager. I mean, teenagers in jail need a lot of help. Yeah, and they aren't getting those kinds of services mm-hmm. at all, right? So it's just it's mind blowing, actually, the kind of financial corruption and and injustice that is involved here in the legal system. Okay, so I'm sitting here listening, thinking. Well, just don't get a DUI. Don't get in trouble. Sure. Don't you know, break the law and you'll Don't be break fine. the law. Yeah. Don't don't do any don't do any. But we all know if the government relies on incarceration and other types of legal fees in order to fund DA's offices, et cetera, they're gonna find people to arrest. With, it whether right, it incentivizes exactly. the policing. It's not that well. If you just don't break the law, you won't. You know, you won't get into trouble. No, and and we all know that the people who who break the law, who have the resources to get out from under that, right, don't suffer the same consequences. Or the or the consequences feel like less to them. When we talked about the dist- the DA fee, what we refer to as a DA fee, that's forty bucks a month while you're on probation can go up to a year for a misdemeanor and up to two years for a felony. Now, if you're making $250,000 a year, 40 bucks is nothing to you. But if you're down here flipping burgers at McDonald's for minimum wage, that's a ton of money to have come up with every month. $40 in addition to everything month, else. Every month, And, yeah. you know, you, you said, you mentioned, you know, it's been incentivized. That, to me, has been the primary effect of the, the district attorney fees. This is a fee that's assessed... In addition to your other probation fees, you know, if, if you are on probation here in Cleveland County, you're paying a monthly installment payment on your court costs. That goes to the court clerk. 
you're paying 40 bucks a month to your probation officer and you're paying 40 bucks a month to the DA's office. Now, that means, and I think we talked about this before the show, let's take Oklahoma County for an example. They will file between felonies and misdemeanors plus or minus 10,000 cases this year. Most of those people will wind up on probation. Now, you think, well, let's say 8,000 of those wind up on probation. 40 bucks a month, you do the math. That's a ton of money. And if you're making a charging decision, you actually, and it, not just whether you charge, but what you charge, and, you know, am I going to charge a misdemeanor and get 40 bucks a month for 12 months, or am I going to charge a felony and get it for 24 months? They have an actual financial incentive that, that uh, can affect the charging decision. And that, to my mind, is tremendously corrupt. And that's a product of our, our wonderful state legislature. My understanding from talking to some um, ADAs and public defenders is that in, in Oklahoma County, and correct me if you know that this is happening in other places, it's further incentivized that ADAs get their annual raises depending on how many charges they file and how many of these cases they actually win and people end up going in, into the prison system. And so the, the ADA that does more of the charging and the winning is actually more likely to get that pay increase versus the ones that maybe are the more ethical ADAs are less likely to get those increases. Have you heard anything about that? I really have not, but it makes sense to me in terms of, you know, how tough are you going to be that you would advance through the ranks in really any prosecutor's office? I don't know if you really get points for being for having a big heart or being humane in that mm -hmm. setting. And I don't, I don't think about it as being, I mean, it's great to be humane and it's great to be, have compassion, but I think there has to be some logic in our criminal justice system. Um, the purpose of it, I, I would hope, is to seek th truth and justice. And the hope is to, you know, reduce crime and hopefully contribute to turning individuals who may be having societal struggles into productive individuals that are contributing to our society. But I don't think that the history of the Oklahoma criminal justice system has a lot that we could applaud for it. I think what it has done in, in actuality is create a large portion of second and third class citizens who either can't find jobs because of their previous criminal records, who can't vote, who are probably living in poverty because of all the fines and fees that they have to carry for the criminal justice system. So I don't know how it has been conducive or constructive for the overall health of our state. And, and I would argue that crime has not necessarily reduced, particularly violent crimes. With the level of incarcerations that we have, I, can, I, I cannot sit here and say statistically that the police and the DAs can say we are safer in Oklahoma because we've sent more people to jail. I, I think that's a major flaw in the system. The whole thing about get tough on crime was based on fear. We're afraid of violent crime and we want to be tough on those people. And let me just say, you know, even as a criminal defense lawyer, I can tell you for a fact we have prisons for a reason. Yeah. Because there are people out there that if they are not locked up, we are not safe. But it, it can't be, you know, locking people up can't be a panacea for everything. That The latest studies that I know of show pretty much across the board that the severity of punishment isn't what deters somebody from committing a crime. It's the likelihood of getting caught that deters them. I mean, if we could have the death penalty for shoplifting if you wanted, but if you didn't feel like you were going to get caught, it wouldn't deter anybody. Fortunately, I think in the last few years, there, there have been some people that have approached it a little bit different. There's no data that shows that incarcerating larger numbers of people reduces the crime rate or makes us safer. 
And it seems like that kind of pandering to the fear, though, plays back into the whole, you know, law and order. And again, kind of this is a cyclical thing. This is all supporting itself, right? You've got the financial incentive. You've got powerful people that are also incentivized by the financial payoff of being in these kinds of positions. But the fear is based on misinformation about criminal activity in general. I mean, we're led to believe that we should be afraid of all this random crime going on out there and these people going out. And I mean, I don't doubt you, David, that there are people that need to be locked up or else we're unsafe. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I believe you. You've done this for a long time. I also would ask, like, what contributed to those situations, right? I mean, I think that there are some kind of root causes that we well, don't really get to. But I also think that we are told that you're likely to be a victim of a random crime when overwhelmingly the majority of crime, that, especially violent crime that takes place out there, is interpersonal in nature. And it's largely being done by people that you know. So it's like the, this whole random crime business is really not a reality. But yet that's how they convince us to keep this system going. That's, that's very true. You said one thing that I wanted to pick up on and you talked about the underlying circumstances behind some of the things that happened. The, the saying that we always use is no one's born a murderer. God doesn't make murderers. And I think that part of the narrative is left out, you know, when we're getting all this propaganda about you got to be afraid of crime. And certainly crime is something we ought to be concerned about. I mean, I'm a parent. You know, my sons are grown now. But, you know, when they were small, I was terrified that something might happen to them. So that was a chord that was waiting to be struck in me, more or less. Another thing I think that contributes to this attitude of lock them all up is that people don't really understand what that involves. And, you know, we've talked about some of the financial impact that it has on people. But, you know, I hear people all the time say, and, you know, they go to prison, all they do is lay around all day and watch color TV. Yeah, no. This is not what happens in prison. Um, yeah. There, there's times they get to watch TV, but there's times when they're sitting in a cell the size of a walk-in closet with three other guys 23 hours a day. And, and I hate to interrupt here, but another aspect of it is a lot of a lot of times what you find out is a lot of these prisoners in uh, Department of Corrections are actually working physical labor jobs for pennies uh, on the dollar while also paying their incarceration fees. So really what it's become is a legalized way to enslave people for profiteering. We briefly touched on kind of the outsourcing and some of the contracting that goes on with the telecommunication, the commissary, as well as the laundry, everything that goes into maintaining a jail facility. But we've even in the state of Oklahoma, particularly our governors a few decades ago, began contracting and passing laws that signed contractual agreements with private prisons that we would keep and maintain their beds full at 90% capacity. And that's still an ongoing situation. Yeah, private prisons are a very bad thing for a couple of reasons. For one, you know, you want to talk about corruption. These contracts with our private prisons are negotiated. And those terms, I don't know if you ever read one, but the terms are not favorable to us. We have to pay them, in some cases, I think 95% full, whether they're full or not. So we're paying them for for 95% of those beds. Plus, you know, if they get over 95%, we're paying them more. But if we don't keep those beds 90% full, we're actually losing money. So there again is a, is a, a corrupt motive to, you know, we got to keep those beds full. Yeah. Um, that's one big problem. And, of course, you know, you want to talk about the terms of the contract. Well, you know, the people that, that negotiate those contracts on behalf of the state of Oklahoma would be, you know, I mean, I'm not an expert on corruption, but I would think that they would be a prime target. Right. 
for, for corruption. The well, other thing I want to say about private prisons is this. One of the reasons they're so bad is if you're a warden of a state prison, Department of Corrections, your job is to run that prison where it's safe and the rights of the people in there are observed to the best possible. And it's secure both for the inmates and the staff. That's your job. If you're the warden of a private prison, your job is to make money for the shareholders any way you can. And this is why in private prisons they don't feed them like they should. The security is generally laxer, which is, you know, we think of that in terms of people escaping. The more important thing is what happens to people while they're there. Security makes for safety for the inmates, too. So private prisons are bad. A colleague of mine in Colorado kind of went on a campaign against them, kind of a crusade. Up there, they were actually renting, private prisons were actually renting the labor of the inmates out to private concerns, lawn mowing companies and construction companies and things like this. They were actually making money on these people. I mean, it was it's slavery. That's what it is. Yeah, they, they, they don't do that up there anymore, and I don't know what our position is down here. I don't hear of it going on a lot, but private prisons are a very bad thing. Well, of course, I would argue that all prisons are a bad thing. But on this issue of private privatizing businesses, I mean, going back to the political system and the financial incentives of elected officials, I mean, it's no accident, for example, that two of Donald Trump's largest campaign contributors are two owners and operators of private prisons around this country that are operating ICE detention facilities and are making billions of dollars off of U.S. taxpayer money precisely for this reason, because the more people they detain, the more money they make. And so it's a horrendous cycle of violence and poverty that's really inhumane. But we're coming to the end of our time. And so I kind of wanted to have take the last couple minutes, at least because this is kind of a depressing topic. And it's like, what do we do? In your experience, like, what is it that we need to focus on now? This is clearly a problem. We're pointing out all of the reasons why, you know, this is this is corrupt. It's unjust. It's inhumane. So what do we do about it? What are some of the things that we need to focus on? Well, I think one of the biggest problems is the general public doesn't really know most of these things that we're talking about. So I think publicizing that and, you know, uh, getting that information out there would be one thing. I think greater transparency, you know, in our political process altogether. I mean, it'd be nice to know which of those state legislators is getting contributions from the private prison industry. There are just too many ways that that money can be hidden now. I mean, you, you know, the guy, you, you look at their campaign finance report, it says Joe Blow Pack. You got no way of knowing who that is. Yeah. Uh, dark money is too prevalent. So not only in this uh, in this aspect of of uh, our government, but really in every, I, th- I think, you know, you can, can hold people more accountable for who's pulling their strings. Something has to be done to reverse this trend of using the criminal court system as a revenue producer for government. I don't know how you replace that revenue, and that really isn't, you know, part of what I worry about. But this business of tacking on fees and, you know, the court costs and the cost of incarceration, I mean, where, you know, you finally do get out of jail and you're on probation, you owe thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. I think there ought to be a way to abate some of those costs, and some of our judges will actually do that. If you're doing well on probation, they'll reward you by saying, you know what, I'm going to knock 1500 bucks off your court costs. And that is real incentive for some of these guys because that's, you know, some we're talking about people, that's an enormous amount of money. That's a month's pay. So, you know, I mean, those are just some things. I think just general awareness of the idea that, you know, we don't need to be prosecuting everybody all the time for everything. George Will, bless his heart, wrote a column called Everything's Illegal. And it was about overcriminalization. 
And when a guy like that speaks out against it, you know, that's, yeah, that's all, that carries a lot of weight right, with people who people. identify themselves as conservatives. Exactly. Right. Those are just some things that come to mind. Very, very helpful. Thank you very much for helping raise awareness about this topic today with us here on Corruption is Deadly. Appreciate it, David. Glad to be here. Thanks for asking. 